Hello and welcome to Legal Thinking from RWK Goodman and for this episode only, Blue Box Corporate Finance as well. I'm Liam Pape and I'm joined as ever by my colleague Ed Wooten. Ed, how are you today? I'm I'm very well, thank you Liam. I'm, I'm enjoying the slightly brighter if still cold weather of, of March. Relative nice weather, I should add. It's, you know, not... 12 inches of snow or whatever it is. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, in today's episode, we talk about selling a business and why the timing of selling a business is absolutely pivotal. Uh, we talk about something I've written in my notes called sell-side synergies. <laughs> That's good. one of my notes from the interview. Alliteration uh, is always a good idea. Absolutely. Uh, and in this episode, we speak to... Yeah, we spoke to uh, Paul Herman, who is the founder of Blue Box. He's a chartered accountant, um, and he has a wealth of experience both selling private companies and preparing them for sale as well, as you will hear um, throughout the episode. Yeah, it's uh, it was really interesting to speak to. And also our very own um, Tanya Schillingford, who is a partner in our corporate team. This podcast runs a little bit longer than our usual ones, but we thought it was a really interesting interview, so we've tried to keep as much of it in as possible. Without any further ado, let's roll tape. So I'll direct my first question towards uh, Paul. Paul, when is the best time to sell? Liam, it's a it's a great question to, um, to open up the podcast with because it's, uh, I would say, probably the most important question that vendors need to consider and, and timing and the timing of an exit is is of fundamental importance. And the challenge with timing is there's two sides of timing. There's the bit of timing you can control and the bit of timing that's out of your control. Let me give you a, a quick example. You've got, as a business owner, you've got a new MD joining, you're about to launch a new product in a new territory, you're about to engage with your customers in a different way. And, th- and the question is, do you engage in a sale process in advance of making these changes or after these changes? You've got the luxury of effectively deciding um, you know, when, you, when you sell based on, on those internal decisions that you're going to be taking. Um, the, the challenge with timing is there's another side, which is timing pieces that are outside of our control. And I, and I say for... Um, for humanitarian as opposed to uh, financially driven reasons. But on September the 11th, as an example, all transactions came to a halt. They all, they all terminated. Um, the vendors were in a business we were working with were about to launch into an exercise and, and clearly timing was determined by the impact from, from external factors. And, and our view and our view at Blue Box is you shouldn't be overly concerned. You need to be mindful of what's happening in the external environment, but I can assure you that very few people saw COVID coming, or for that matter, very sadly, um, 9-11 or, or, or the July bombings in London. Um, and these are things that take take things out. So you so you you have some eye on on you know managing a sensible level of risk, but internally you can take a view based on what initiatives you've got. And and the challenge is that many initiatives will have the promise of upside, but they won't be delivered. So the acquirer will be taking a risk. You'll promise that the new MD is going to be fabulous or the new territory is going to take off. And if you waited for those to be demonstrated and waited for the CEO to be wonderful or the, the new territory to take off, you are inevitably going to secure a better price. The challenge is what happens if they don't, don't pan out quite as you've expected. If you look more generally um, and a very, I suppose the stock response we would give to uh, clients is the two best times to take a business into 
the market are ideally in January, February, March, or in September, October. It would be foolhardy to launch a sale exercise uh, with summer directly ahead of you, because managing competitive tension and managing the pool of advisors through a summer period can prove challenging. So ordinarily, you'd look to launch an exercise. You can do your prep work in advance of that, but to actually start speaking with target buyers in January, February, March is a good place to be, or alternatively, wait until after the summer. So there's there's a there's a lot to discuss, as I've just suggested, on timing. But it's it's such a very very important question, Liam. You've touched a little bit upon it there, but uh, why do most business sales collapse? Well, business sales collapsed. In fact, it was the, the, the genesis for starting Blue Box because we started to do some research when I was formerly working in both private equity and corporate finance. And, and we started looking and, and, and in fact, there was some research at the time that was done by the, or that was, that was published in the Harvard Business Review, which suggested that only 10% of deals that actually went into the market were being successfully completed. So we started looking at exactly that question, Liam, why do these deals collapse and what's the reason for them? And, and we broke the responses down into a number of different different categories. I think at the top of the tree, I'll be careful what I say here because it's, and it's, a, it's a, a public uh, podcast, um, but we see an effect where people are overpromised on pricing and they're encouraged by advisors to move into the market at a pricing level that was never going to be achievable through a process. So, you know, John Smith, whose business was worth six million quid, but never ever wanted to sell it was 10, was encouraged by said advisor to approach the market, try and sell it for 10, 11, 12 million. And surprise, surprise, the deal was never a success and, and, and a result wasn't forthcoming. So making sure that your expectation on price is, um, you know, has some validity is a very important piece. And, and the way to do that is to speak with people in the know. And we're more than happy at Blue Box to um, speak with people who've got uh, a business and give them a sense check. But don't be swayed by, um, dare I say, without... Um, slurring a whole community, but a, a kind of an estate agent mentality. Oh yes, Mr. Smith, your business is worth X, Y, Z. It's never going to be delivered. So that's that's a very common reason. Um, the, the second reason I'm delighted um, that, that, that Tanya is able to um, support the podcast here because she's a, done a fabulous job with many of our clients. But the, uh, the, the challenges that appear in due diligence and due diligence, as Tanya will say uh, later, includes uh, and can, can cover a whole range of topics. And quite often, um, these transactions, because we tend to work with the smaller businesses, you know, in, in, most certainly uh, in almost all cases under £100 million of value, they're just not prepared for this exercise. So they don't have their IP sat in the right place. They don't have their, um, you know, the, the, the right pieces in place to allow a pensions due diligence exercise. So issues that arise in due diligence are very often um, the causes of, of failed exercises, which is why, again, either with or without an advisor, um, it's, it's, it's well worthwhile to make sure that you're fully prepared for a due diligence exercise and you're preparing because due diligence as reason number two is a, is a, a fundamental reason why exercises fail. And then we then move on to, to uh, trading. I mean, we very often see transactions where, uh, you know, a client has said that they'll be delivering profitability of X, um, 
on revenue of Y. And for whatever reason, that trading is not achieved at that level. Um, obviously, that has an impact invariably on the price at which the transaction will be executed. Um, buyers aren't able to stand behind offers that they'd made and a deal comes tumbling down. So trading and poor trading through an exercise is, again, a very common factor. And and what I would say, Liam, is is one of the, the, the real bits of advice um, to, to mitigate against those risks is to ensure that when you're going into the market, you're presenting a business with a forecast that has some suspension in it. You're not trying to put something forward that's, you know, eking every last penny out of the business because not meeting your forecasts and your trading through a period of due diligence or through a sale exercise is fatal and, and or is often fatal. And it's something that can be avoided. So going in much more conservatively with your numbers to begin with, the pricing that the buyer ultimately puts on a business is not determined by the first set of flash numbers they see. They'll see the numbers, they'll digest them, digest the numbers, and inevitably there will be follow-on meetings, engagements, as the, uh, as I think it's known in the trade, the dog and pony trade uh, show continues. And on that basis, you want to be providing more robust numbers as you move through and as you move to a point where someone's going to put pricing together. You'll first of all send someone a document for them to review. They won't simply come back and say, we like the document, we're going to pay you nine and a half million pounds. They'll say, that looks interesting, tell us more. And when you've then been through the exercise of telling them more, giving some background to what the business does, what the growth opportunities look like, come back to that later, but of fundamental importance. At that point, you might supply some further numbers. And you've still probably got an audience of several buyers who are looking at the asset. And you might then present some numbers which are more aggressive, but you know that are going to be delivered. So making sure you're not overcooking the numbers because poor trading through an exercise can kill a deal. And so providing yourself with suspension in advance of that is a is an important piece. And then the last the last um, kind of category is around misalignment of objectives between various stakeholders. I mean, this is a you know, this is the SME market, the smaller medium size business market. And that comes with its the wonders of personality. You quite often see in small deals misalignment amongst the shareholders misalignment between the shareholders and, dare I say, the management team and intra-management team and intra-shareholder base. So making sure that all objectives are aligned at the outset to make sure that we have a coherent objective that is not with divergent objectives, but everyone's aiming for the same goal. Obviously, Liam, you will have uh, situations where Different people want to move slightly in different direction. That's one of the skills that a corporate financier should be able to bring. It's the it's the cajoling and the and the rounding up of the shareholders in a way that you're fair to all. But if the objectives of uh, objectives, apologies, are too divergent, then um, it becomes a much more challenging exercise. So, why do they collapse? Mismanage expectations, due diligence and issues that appear in due diligence, trading of the business. And finally, misaligned objectives between key stakeholders in in an exercise. And again, you've touched upon it a, a little bit there, but how will acquirers value a business and what considerations will be made? 
Well, that that's of course a, a question on which we could dwell for literally. Um, I was going to say hours, but I suspect <laughs> days, Liam. Um, and and the answer is that most of our clients are driven by value. Not all, in, interestingly, but but a, a bunch of them are, and the overwhelming majority are. They want to see fair value. They want to realise full value for their business. And what they don't want is they don't want a textbook valuation where someone turns around gets a you know, uh, your your profitability, whether that be EBIT, EBITDA, operating profit, net profit, and they apply it by a multiple. What we actually want to achieve is we want to achieve a strategic premium and identify a buyer that doesn't just pay textbook value, but actually sees above and beyond um, where the opportunity might lie. And that tends to come through what we would describe as sell-side synergies. This is the ability of a business, a buyer, to sell their product into the target's base. So all of a sudden, we have a business that they're thinking about buying, and there is a, a uh, incremental product that can be sold to that, that incumbent base of the target. And the flip side is it's selling the product's of the target into the customer base of the of the of the purchaser, and it's those type of synergies. I mean, we're dealing with people at the moment who, as a as our client, have a very tight, tightly controlled, and difficult to penetrate market as a as a uh, as a customer base. The attraction and the value being ascribed to the business is derived from the purchasers, which in this instance come from overseas in the states, being able to see the UK business as effectively their beachhead to move here, but a, a bunch of relationships into whom they can sell into they can sell product. And apart from everything else, there's some fairly significant barriers to entry and this this acquisition provides that. So valuation is a is a really is a really interesting and and um, complex topic. But after I qualified as a chartered accountant, I, I was with um what's now PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, and was in their valuation team and learned very quickly that I could write a 400-page report that could come up with two very, very different answers. So mm-hmm. valuation, as you would have heard, is a, very much an art, not a science. The, the, the methodologies that you would typically use um, fall into a number of categories, and, and I'm sure your, your listeners would have heard of the, 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 the uh, a comparable company analysis where people effectively take, look at the market, they look at the, because your business is unlikely to be quoted. There's not people who are buying shares in your business. You can't see the price at which people are actually buying your shares. You can if there's been M&A in your market, but otherwise it's very difficult to, to see. So what people do is they look at the profit multiples that people are achieving. So they see that someone in the market is, for example, just using some very simple maths, they've got 10 million pounds of profit. Their share price shows they have a share price of pick a number 70 million. So we know that they're trading at seven times profit. And so what we would do is we would use that multiple and apply it to to where we are now. That's a very flawed methodology. I was once selling a business many years back called Watches of Switzerland, which was a retail business. And the buyers decided to look at some comparable company analysis, said we're a retailer, and therefore we'll look at retail multiples. And they looked at the multiple that Tesco's was was trading at. They looked at the multiple that H. Samuels was trading at. They looked at the multiple that um, uh, a number of the other supermarket chains, niche retailers were trading at. And it was 
It was completely flawed, of course, because it was a different scale. There was a different growth opportunity. There was a, um, a different strength of management team. There was a different level of maturity in the business. There was a different level of liquidity in the equity because it wasn't as liquid as it would be in a, in a, in a public business. So ordinarily, there, there are flaws, but people will use multiples and do this comparable company analysis as a starting point, finger in the air. And thereafter, you've got other other methodologies. You've got the purest from a mathematical standpoint, which is um, a discounted cash flow analysis, which comes back to a net present value where you, you effectively take what you're expecting your future cash flows to be and you discount to today's rate based on a, a blended rate of what the debt and the equity is costing you in your business and you arrive at it as a day one value. Mathematically sound, except in my experience, 99 out of 100 business owners that we speak with certainly don't know to a penny what cash flow their business is going to be making next year. So there's a big area of guessing around that. Um, and then you've got asset-based valuations where you're looking at a, a valuation and that tends to come with the asset-heavy businesses. So nursing homes, hotels, something with a very significant property element might be valued on that. Um, and then you've got you know the 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 rather um, lofty ambitions of many in the um, very attractive world of of software and SaaS businesses and and the the more modern day business where what you're doing is you're looking at how the growth of business will be so significant that you should deserve and you're not making any profit likely so you're looking at a, at, at a revenue multiple. So, so the, the, the answer is there's no, there's no single methodology that, that, that can be applied across all instances. It's very much a case of, of what it's worth to the buyer. It is certainly the case that some businesses have a much broader distribution and value than others. We see some and we say, look, that's going to be worth between picking numbers, six and seven million or 13 and 15 million and others we see, we say you're going to get somewhere between 10 and 40 and they look at us as if we, we have no idea as to what we're doing, but the gen, the, the reality is it depends on, on what basis and to what value a purchaser can add and clobber there. So it, it's, it's a difficult question. Those are broadly the, the, the valuation methodologies the, the bit I would absolutely point to is the year in which, uh, to which you're applying these multiples. And I had the pleasure of selling a business called Goo, the chocolate dessert business, um, where we we en ended up with, as I, I said, it was a very good case study because we ended up with a, a multiple of over 50 times. And of course, the phone stopped ringing, didn't stop ringing when we when we presented that to, to the market. The reality was no one had bought it for 50 times earnings. They'd bought it for a far more sober multiple of where the future was likely to be. And it's that credibility and that visibility of the future. And if you can convey that, get a much more sober multiple of the future, you may well find that you're ending up with a, the, the best possible price of all. And the presentation of that, which is why we spend so much time at Blue Box looking at that, is of, is of fundamental importance. And why is it important to plan as far ahead as possible if you may be selling a business? Well, there's two things that timing provides um, Liam, the first is an opportunity to go through checklists, and and you know I know it's something that that, that Tanya and her team do, do so incredibly well. Um, and your practice does very well. It's making sure that you're prepared well in advance, because you can go through your IP, you can go through your employment, you can go through your 
stat books, your corporate matters, and um, make sure that your your commercial contracts, your GDPR, I mean, everything that you need to check needs some time to resolve. And some things are very simple thing, you know, shareholders lost their share certificate. Well, you know, hey-ho, it's a few extra hundred quid on the legal fees, sadly, but it can be recreated. Other things need more time, things like, like IP. Um, areas of pensions, which are relevant to some businesses, they are very difficult to um, remedy with no time. So making sure that you go through and look at everything you're going to be needing through an exercise and tackling that to ensure that you are are ready. So that that's what I would call the checklist, the tick box exercise. But over and above that is the positioning piece. And there is nothing better in my mind, which is why a lot of our business is set up in exactly this way, of making sure that the business is positioned in that year, two years, three years in advance of an exit. Uh, we're often asked, when's the earliest time to get us involved? And, and, and the uh, marginally facetious, but, but absolutely honest answer is, is on day one. Because business models and how you set your business model up can have a dramatic impact on the value you achieve. Quality of the income, the nature of that income, the type of growth you can expect, and the certain things that you're driving for within the business. So, as well as and on top of the checklist that you can do, you will need to make sure that there is a properly positioned plan. The, the analogy in, in houses, interestingly, I was speaking with a, a friend the other day who's absolutely thinking about moving moving house. And the first thing they've done is they've spent three and a half thousand quid on some rather glamorous and very extensive planning permission. And the question to me is, is that three and a half thousand quid going to be returned through a sale exercise? And the answer is absolutely yes, because it gives the buyer that vision as to what it could be. And in exactly the same way, if you do the analysis of that buyer universe at the right time in advance, creating a model um, is so important. And I'll just leave you with with one thought. When I, I started the business, as you're, you're aware, with James Kahn, the former dragon from, from Dragon's Den, who I'd sold a number of businesses for, and James was buying, uh, as you do, a rather glamorous apartment in the middle of Mayfair. Um, and we were sharing an office. And he said, look, I wouldn't mind you having a look at this brochure that's been done by one of the the, the big property guys. I couldn't remember if it was Collier's or, or, or Jones Lang. I can't remember who it was. But they'd put a, a brochure together which showed how he should have this apartment decorated. And he said, what do you think? And I, I knew James pretty well. And he knew I was very direct. And I did say to him, it's absolutely awful. And his response to me was, but this pool is all about blue box. I was pretty shocked because we'd only been in business at that stage about six months. I didn't know what he was saying. But of course, what he was saying was that the people who'd done this plan for the flat had actually looked at who the buyer was likely to be in that block. And at the time, there was... Uh, I think it was a block of seven or eight apartments and they were all occupied by Middle Eastern buyers. And they had a very different um, uh, requirement and taste in decor to that which, you know, others may have had. Um, and what they had very cleverly done is they painted the picture in the best possible way for 
the audience that was out there. And in exactly the same way, I would make sure that the picture that you're painting for your business is the most attractive in the context of the buyers, which obviously puts that extra step in to make sure you know who your buyers are going to be in advance of creating that plan. But for us, that work in advance, in addition to the to the checklist piece um, is important. And that's why timing and getting people involved early, whether that be us or another, is a is of is of real importance and can drive can drive very significant value. Thanks very much, Paul. I think we'll move on to Tanya and and maybe you might be able to input as well on some of these uh, questions. But um, Tanya, the first question I had was basically how can um, how can a business owner prepare if they want to share proceeds through EMI when they sell? Okay, so this neatly fits in with what Paul has been saying about timing. So you might get to the stage where you've 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 done all the work with Paul to prepare the finances, got your offers, chosen one, and then decide, oh, I'd quite like to reward my key management team or certain shareholders. Um, now, if you do that at the last minute, it and if the sellers sort of give part of their pro- sale proceeds to the key management team, that's going to be paid out of tax income, tax proceeds, and it's not very tax efficient because the employees are largely likely to suffer employment taxes, income tax, and NIC. So, think well in advance about um, share options. So, EMI share options are very tried and tested way of incentivizing your employees. So, it also has that you know incentivization um, piece to it. But they also have certain tax benefits. So, broadly speaking, instead of um, rewarding your employees through cash, which is taxed as to income tax, if you give them share options, which are exercisable only on an exit, then then you can devise it so that they effectively pay capital gains tax. And the reason why you should think well ahead about this is – Everyone's heard of entrepreneurs' relief, which is now called business asset disposal relief. So, if you you have granted options to your employees two years before the disposal, then they can um, be they can qualify for this entrepreneurs' relief, which brings out their capital gains tax bill down from. 20% to 10% if all the um, requirements are added. So, it's it's something to think of well in advance of the actual sale in terms of rewarding them, but also as a way of incentivizing them to grow the business and achieve that, that maximize that value of your business. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, um, Paul kind of touched on uh, some of the elements of, of due diligence that need to be done in the whole, the idea of doing a checkbox exercise. I wonder if you could just run through the areas of due diligence that sellers uh, should be prepared for, basically, when they're, when they're preparing to sell. Yeah, so Paul has touched on this. Um, what happens in the sale process when you get to that stage is is the the buyer will want to know absolutely everything about your business, as as Paul has alluded to. So the preparation. So you'll you'll receive a legal due diligence questionnaire, which will ask about everything: litigation, employees, contractors, intellectual property. What you don't want to find is at the last minute of the sale process that you find these skeletons in the cupboard. 
which then have to be resolved. But by that stage, you've got a gun to your head in the sale timetable. And if something is discovered late on, then there's always the possibility for the purchaser to renegotiate the price downwards because they found a problem. Or they may want to seek indemnities from the sellers so that if, if the problem does come to light, then the seller has to pay out. And the seller wouldn't want, would want to avoid that because you want to take your cash off the table and, and not worry about it for the next seven years or whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, as, as Paul says, look at start putting into place very early and, and the checklist process works well with this, making sure all your employment contracts are, are all up to date. They have everything that they should say in them. Have you got any, you know, all the passports, copy passports that you have to collect as an employer? If you've and and are all your general trading contracts in in writing? <laughs> Do they have full full terms? And um, also intellectual property. Um, Paul, I think you wanted to jump in here. Yeah, I I think I, I completely agree, agree, Tanya. What I I would say is I think there are certain areas of the due diligence that need to be prioritised because of time. G- give you another example. I mean, I'm, I'm walking around a manufacturing site in, in Luton the other day, um, and there's, you know, it's a chemical-rich environment. Um, it's all well and good being prepared for, you know, the, the employment due diligence, which can, to a, to a point, be done much later in the day. But when you, you wind forward and think, you know, I might have a US buyer, that's going to be walking around this factory, they are absolutely paranoid as to any environmental liability. They see some, you know, bubbles frothing from a number of drains. And I can assure you the first thing they do is they'll say, right, we want to do some some environmental due diligence. The challenge on environmental due diligence, which is relevant in a couple of areas, is it takes time because when they decide three days before completion that they need to drill six boreholes and watch them fill up for the next eight months to check there's nothing nasty in the in the water tables underneath the, the property, you are very much in the territory of having uh, a, a broken process. So there are certain things I think you can leave with time and others that you can't. Yeah, I think a lot of people see due diligence as being financially driven and very much akin to an audit. And it's it's not. It's it's an, almost an audit of your management accounts rather than just the FinStats, the financial statements that you've submitted to Companies House. And showing the picture and the trends and the growth and the opportunity map within those statements is of fundamental importance because that's what's going to be driving value. So making sure that you're preparing not just for a financial exercise that's going to be akin to an audit, but saying, how should we present our management accounts and make sure that the reconciliations are appropriate in advance of going to the market is a very, very, and that's the bit I think, Talia, that, that needs that needs a lot of time. Um, and as and as you all know, and, and we all know that due diligence, I mean, you always get hit by something that that, that no one has contemplated. So being as as rigorous as as one can in ensuring you're you're preparing in all areas, reasonable areas, um, is of, of fundamental importance. Um, and, and one of the areas I think you've, you've both mentioned a couple of times is um, intellectual property. And Liam and I know uh, from some of the podcast episodes we've done in the past that intellectual property is incredibly complicated, um, as most areas of law are. Um, but I, I just wonder, uh, Tanya, if you had any examples of, of why it's particularly important to consider intellectual property in a sale. 
Yeah, no, this is this is a very key thing because most businesses will have some form of intellectual property or you might have tech companies where they have a software product, which is just absolutely fundamental to their business. And the common thing that comes up is they may have an in-house IT development team or they may also use third-party IT developers for them. So I had one where fantastic software product we're quite far on in the sale process and the seller asked for you know where are all your assignments for all this intellectual property that's been been uh, written for you by the third party developer contractors now these were not employees these were third party contractors and the client says well i you know i paid their invoice don't i own it and the, the, strictly speaking at law no you don't um, you really need to get a formal assignment to get the full, full, full rights to that. So our seller had to go and approach his third-party developer. But by that stage, um, the sale was in the offing and the developer demanded uh, quite a sizable amount of money so that he would hand over that piece of paper because he knew that the seller was um, up against a timetable. Um, so that's a word of caution, but I would say as a general rule, you know, even if you're not contemplating a sale, do make sure you get your IP sorted at, at the outset so that you do own all your rights and don't run into problems. It's a really interesting point because I think lots of the businesses that we, that we see, you know, will, will present absent any IP and, in terms of what the vendor believes, they believe they have very little IP. And you turn around and say, well, hang on, what are, because they're not in a development environment. A lot of people will associate certain IP, certainly in terms of the IP that's creating value, as that which is associated with software or other other development um, of, of product within the business. But I'd argue that almost all, if not all, businesses will have some form of IP because they'll have a brand and they'll have a website and they'll have a logo. and um, I can assure you we've been involved in many a battle where there is a conflict and there's not a very, you know, there are, there are associated business that are hanging off that look a little bit similar. Oh, yeah, we split up from six years ago and, you know, they're nothing to do with us now. And, well, if I were a layman and I was doing a Google search, it's very much to do with you. It's almost an identical logo. Yeah. So making sure that an IP review is done in all businesses, if only to say that we have no IP apart from our brand. And, and that's something that, that you guy and your team, Tony, I know can sort out very quickly and actually quite cost effectively if I'm, if I'm, if I'm right. So, you know, that is a, is a starting point, but, but you're absolutely right. The, the longer you leave it towards a point where, the transaction is in the offing. Um, and to the extent you have even marginally mischievous developers that, that recognize there may be a, a, an opportunity here to grab some extra dosh, um, it becomes more challenging. So again, a, a reason, Ed and Liam, to, to make sure that, that you know, you're, you're doing these things very, very much earlier than, than, than you ordinarily would. So um, obviously, Paul, uh, you, 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 covered earlier that there can be misalignment between shareholders and management teams in, in a sale sometimes. I just wonder, Tanya, how, how should you manage shareholders in the event you want to sell? And can minority shareholders be forced to sell if perhaps they're not quite aligned with the goals of the, the, the management team? Well, this is what you want to think about well in advance and not just before the point of sale. If you've got several 
selling shareholders, including some minority shareholders who might not be involved on the day to day. You don't want those shareholders holding you to ransom and saying, well, I'm not going to sell at this price. I want a bit more. I want a bigger chunk. So, thinking ahead, um, thinking ahead when you, you, you set up your company, thinking ahead before you get to that point where you're making decisions about sale, you can have a reasonable conversation with your group of shareholders and say, um, what, and introduce the concept of what we call drag along rights. So, this is where, let's say you have 51% of the shareholders decide that they do want to sell. If it's 51% who, who say they want to, then they can force the others to sell alongside them. And that, that helps you in terms of you know having those conversations well in advance that they, they can say, yep, that sounds reasonable. I can trust the majority to seek the best price that they think are is 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 achievable and therefore i'm happy to be go along with it dragged along um so that's a conversation best had right at the outset not at the point where you actually have a sale on the table and you have come across this situation where they just didn't think about that at the time everything was going swimmingly they didn't have a shareholders agreement or articles which included that provision and then you get to the pinch point where a nice sizable offer came in and some of the shareholders didn't want to accept it and they were completely stuck. So, I'd say definitely have a look at your articles or shareholders agreement if you have that. So, you can have that reasonable conversation when it isn't under pressure of the sale process. And Paul, you want to chip in? I think the um, the concept, the commercial concept of drag along and, and obviously on the other side, tag along where, which is the minority protection where you can tag yourself along if a deal happens. The concept of tag, a drag along is, is, is good. The challenge in the real world is that when you are dragging shareholders, you know, I'm a, I'm a 60% shareholder in the business and let's say Tanya's a 40% shareholder and there's an acrimonious relationship, just paint a picture between the two shareholders, but there's a, a, a drag along provision. So I can insist that Tanya is effectively sales and she's forced to sell her, her business. One of the, one of the, the challenges with that, and I'm sure you've done in, in, in your other series, a piece on warranties and, and indemnities and, and how they operate around a transaction and, and why they're so important. But without going into too much detail, the challenge is that the buyer, if, if Tanya is dragged along unceremoniously and kicking and screaming, she's less likely to be in any way, shape or form compliant from a, a warranty standpoint. So it has, a, has, a, has an implication that if she's very involved with the business, um, I might be, she might say, look, you can buy my shares from me. You can drag me along to a sale but I'm not going to provide any warranties, which can have implications for not only the appetite of a buyer, but also the price at which a deal is, is executed. So your drag along provisions are there. I think the, the, the best resolution in, in, in all of these, these, these deals, if possible, it's not always possible, sadly, is to rise above any emotion that sits there between the various stakeholders, which is easier said than done, clearly but rise above that and try and agree things amicably. Because the minute you get into the world of having to enforce these drag provisions, drag along provisions that, that Tanya's just explained, it becomes difficult commercially, or sorry, it can become difficult commercially. Um, so there, there are, there's caution 
uh, around those in a in an M and A. But again, it leads back to the conversation we had earlier. Sort it out earlier. You need to make sure you're tackling these things, getting things aligned and prepared early. Which is why, you know, that early engagement with your lawyers, your corporate finance advisors, is so so very important. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much for your time. So thank you to uh, Paul Herman and Tanya Schillingford there for their insights into preparing a business for a sale. Um, and I should probably use this opportunity to tell you a bit more about uh, Blue Box. Blue Box Corporate Finance uh, has a professional team that works alongside their clients delivering market-leading pre-sale planning services from up to three years before exit. Uh, the team then provides advice on the sale or fundraising exercises themselves um, with, at the heart of their offering, the award-winning Blue Diamond program. The Blue Box team has sold more than 100 businesses, including the recent sale of the world's largest landmine clearance business, TDI, to US hedge fund a the sale of kids' top-end fashion business based children's wear to JD Sports, and the sale of KK Fine Foods, one of the UK's largest ready meal businesses, to Belgium food group to bake. The team enjoys high profile as a result of their exceptional track record, including the sale of one of the UK's most notable vaping businesses, Vape Stick, the sale of Princess Yachts to Bernard Arno, and the sale of Goo Chocolate Desserts to one of the UK's largest egg producers. So to find out more about that, visit blueboxcfg.com. And just a reminder that RWK Goodman's corporate team regularly advises sellers on the sale of their businesses, as well as buyers on their acquisitions and investments. Clients include entrepreneurs, institutions and high net worth investors, as well as SMEs and large UK and international corporates. Recent deals include the sale of software development platform Python Nanoware to US-based Anaconda. And we advise the software company Oxford Metrics on the £52 million sale of Yotta to Causeway Technologies. And thank you for listening to this episode of Legal Thinking. And if you've enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe on your podcast provider of choice. We'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.